0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sweden in Focus, the locals' weekly look back at what's been happening in the news in Sweden. Later on this week's show, we're going to dig into the energy crisis, the impact it's having on households in Sweden, tips for keeping your energy costs down, and how Sweden's politicians are reacting to the crisis in the run-up to the autumn election, including an interview with Green Party co-leader Merta Stenevy. With me to talk about this, I'm joined, as always, in a very warm Stockholm studio by the locals James Savage and in Malmö by Richard Orange and Becky Waterton. Hello, everybody. Morning. Morning. Uh, We've got a big weekend coming up. First, we have Vålpurgis night or Vålbori on uh, Saturday, followed by Labour Day on Sunday. Are you going to be joining Swedes in lighting bonfires to welcome the spring before waving red flags for workers' rights in May Day parades? Uh, No, none of that. None of us? (laughs) Not this year.
2: My daughter's called Mai, so we will definitely be celebrating the 1st of May in some way. Is that why? Well, no, I just think it's a good name.
1: but
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's not
2: because we're secretly hardline socialists or anything.
3: But Malmo's Malmö's a bit rubbish for Valbori. So they, it, it, when I, f- I think I've only been to two and they just had a r- pretty small bonfire. And I think you really need to be somewhere else. Yeah, I to think get that's because
2: Lund has like a massive Valbori celebration. So Malmo's just a bit like, why should we even try? Everyone's going to go to Lund anyway. And then Malmo kind of has the big 1st of May celebration.
1: I'm just pissed off that May Day is falling a weekend, so we lose a holiday. It's crap.
2: <laughs> I love that you're saying that as our boss. <laughs> oh, I just wish I could give all my employees an extra day off. You know, just- James, guess what? <laughs> guess what, James? Right you still that, can.
1: We won't complain. <laughs> the news never sleeps, Becky. The news never sleeps.
2: Unfortunately, I do, though. <laughs> I think there's a big parade in uh, in Malmö at Park. So I don't know if I'm going to go to it or just kind of observe part of it, but... Kind of depends what my daughter feels like doing. Unfortunately, most of my life is decided by a two year old at the moment, so we're going to have to plan around her. Yeah,
3: it's my daughter's birthday party. So my big fear is that no one will come because we live in in the leftiest part of Malmo. You know, I think they voted 60% for Venster Party and 30% 30 for the Greens. I mean, it's like serious um, urban lefties.
2: Socialism is more important than your daughter's. Yeah,
3: well, this is what worries me is that all the parents at the school are all these kind of, you know, they're all like architects (laughs) and stuff, but they're all kind of way left and, uh, and I'm worried that, that none of their kids will rock up to the party but we shall see
0: just go, <laughs> go to the march and tell your daughter <laughs> yeah. it's all for her
3: your favourite colour's red <laughs> right?
0: Thank you to those of you who have taken the time to give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and elsewhere. is very much appreciated and helps other listeners discover the podcast. And for those of you who haven't given a rating or review, please do. Now, before we get to the main story, we're going to briefly look at a few other topics that we've covered on the site this week, namely Ebba Bush's controversial Easter riot comments, a quick update on the NATO situation and some things about the Swedish language that annoy Swedes. So Ebba Bush, the leader of the Christian Democrats, sent eyebrows through the roof when she made some comments about how she thought police should have dealt with violent riots that erupted across Sweden over the Easter holidays after a right-wing Danish-Swedish extremist burned copies of the Koran in several Swedish cities. Richard, can you tell us what she said?
3: Well, it was in uh, Swedish Radio's Saturday interview, which is kind of the big, long political interview slot that there is in the Swedish media, and she'd had a whole week to prepare for it, so I think it's hard to see anything she said as accidental. And what she said is that, well, we've got at least 100 injured policemen and the question that should be asked is why don't we have at least 100 injured Islamists, 100 injured criminals or 100 injured insurgents, which is already quite full on because she's saying the police should have hurt the protesters, many of whom were children. Mm. But what was really controversial is she said um, the question that should be raised is why wasn't live ammunition used afterwards she sort yeah. of rolled it back and said oh i meant you know perhaps rubber bullets or, or doing it in a serious way i mean when yeah. i
2: when i asked my husband he's swedish he said yeah you have a blank, which is shoot blanks and skarpt, which is shoot live ammunition like live ob-, he was pretty mm. yeah
1: yeah I'm, there's any doubt about there's no doubt about the interpretation i think that's absolutely right.
3: I mean, what's kind of interesting is—is is I, I kind of listened. I always listen to this on Saturday interview. I think it's really one of the best things in the Swedish media. But, but is—is is after she she sort of dropped that at the beginning, and then she became quite reasonable, and she was sort of going, "Oh, you know, yeah, of course, I understand mm. why Muslims would be upset if their holy book is is burnt," and and she sort of. Drop this kind of banger for the headlines, and then, in the rest of it, kind of toned herself down a lot and I, and I'm, I find it hard to see that it was a sort of misinterpretation or not something that
0: wasn 't intended what 's the reaction been like to it i mean what did the, what did the police say for example
2: Well, i mean they 've been they were obviously not particularly happy that she was criticizing them for not shooting people. I think a lot of the police <laughs> They were working really hard to kind of try and control the situation. Mm. And I think saying, oh, you should have been shooting into crowds of protesters. I think the police probably know better than anyone that would probably not have made the situation calmer.
0: Or even crowds of rioters, as these were. I mean, we're not talking
1: about...
2: Yeah, yeah, rioters as well. Yeah, exactly. I
0: mean, commentators were all very critical of of her comments and, you know, police and other politicians, obviously. But why did she make these comments? Because she wanted to get the attention. And she
1: wanted to pro she you know she wants to profile the Christian Democrats as the toughest on law and order she then gave herself the deniability by rowing back on the Mm. on the detail of the comments but left voters with the impression that if anyone is going to be no holds barred on law and order it's her Mm. it works for her and you know when you're when you've got eight political parties in the Swedish parliament plus you know I suppose a few more who would like to come in you have to do something to get noticed and to stand apart from the others and well this this does that at least and she doesn't need that many votes to have a good election so you know she's at she's at what five percent uh, and if she could add another half percent to that it would be jolly good for her it's the kind of
3: politics that the ordinary voter out in the, the countryside of sweden just gets this vague impression that ebba bush is is hard against rioters and muslims and stuff like that and doesn't really understand the detail of what exactly she said or what exactly the, the problem with it is they just get this it just leaves this kind of I don't afterburn that I think she benefits from. She's done it for mm. the
2: benefit of people that only read the headlines and not for the benefit of the people that read full interviews.
1: Which is most people, because most people can't be bothered to read lots of detail about eight political parties and what they all said in great detail about different things. So she got a headline that, that shows she's tough on crime. It worked and um, left a bad taste in some other people's mouths.
2: And even if you don't really care, you see the headlines saying that Eberbush Bush says that you should shoot people. And then that's what you remember about Eberbush. Bush.
0: Another story we've covered extensively in this podcast is whether or not Sweden will join NATO. Over the course of the past couple of months, it's become a question of when rather than if, and now it looks as if it may be happening sooner rather than later. New media reports emerged this week, first in Finland, suggesting a date for when Sweden and Finland are expected to submit their applications to join the military alliance. James, when do the reports say that this is going to happen? They say that it will happen the week commencing the
1: 16th of May. So you know, just a couple of weeks.
0: Yeah. And how reliable are the reports?
1: It matches with quite a lot of the other indications we've had coming out of this. There's an urgency around this. And it's, you know, this, this matches also when Sweden has now said it will bring out its report into the pros and cons of joining NATO around the middle of May as well. So, And it also fits in with the timing of a Finnish state visit to Sweden. So the timing does seem to make sense. But, but obviously, we don't know. It's still just a report. It's not
0: confirmed. And does Sweden have any security guarantees for the period after it submits an application, assuming it does so?
1: Hmm. Well, nothing, uh, again, nothing formal. There's a story in Aftonbladet uh, that says that Sweden has been given assurances by America and the UK that if it was attacked between the period of applying and the and the actual um, its actual acceptance into NATO, then the, then the US and the UK would support uh, Sweden, which also matches a little bit with what British Defence Secretary Ben Wallace said earlier in the spring. It wasn't particularly with regards to Sweden joining NATO, but he, he also said that Sweden would get help militarily from the UK. A bit unclear what that meant in the event that it was attacked. And that was outside of the NATO discussion. But it all sort of seems to make a certain amount of sense or to have a ring of truth about it. So, that, But that's the report in Aftonblad and it seems to be reasonably
0: credible. And we're recording this on Thursday morning. And there was a story this morning, uh, saying that the left party will call for a NATO referendum. Is that likely to happen? Absolutely inconceivable, I think, that there will be a referendum on NATO.
2: I mean, even, even in Finland, they decided against having a referendum because they were worried that Russia would try and influence it too much. So I think that the likelihood yeah. of that happening in Sweden would be low as well.
1: But it's a good way for the left party to profile themselves as being against NATO and and attract votes from anti-NATO social democrats.
2: I think with both this uh, left party statement and with Eber Bush, going back to that, I think you have to see that every single thing politicians are saying at the moment is in the context of it being an election year.
0: And a new story has broken just while we've been recording this. Richard, can you tell us uh, what's been happening?
3: It's that the Riksbank, which is Sweden's central bank, which sets interest rates, has increased its rates above zero for the first time since 2014, which is quite historic. It, and th- there was a little bit of doubt about whether they would do it now, or whether they would do it later. But, but but it was pretty expected that they they're go- they're going to do this because inflation is taking off in Sweden, as it is in most other countries in the world. It's quite intricate. I think Sweden was one of the first countries to go below zero with interest rates. So it's, I think I think it's quite significant that they've they've gone positive.
2: And they've raised it from zero to 0.25%. Right.
1: Which, is, which is the
3: one increment effectively. Yeah. And I think that what most of the banks are expecting is that they're going to hike it in 2.5 chunks until it's maybe like 1% sometime next year. Or maybe that's going a bit far. But, but the, the, the idea is that they will gradually raise it in these sort of small chunks.
0: And hopefully that will start bringing down inflation. This podcast is free to listen to, but if you like what you hear and are not yet a member of The Local, please consider joining. By subscribing, you get the latest news from Sweden that impacts you, essential practical information and advice on life in Sweden, and unrestricted access to all editions of The Local. Please check out our membership offer at thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer to find out more. Becky, you wrote a story this week examining what irritates Swedes the most about their own language. This was based on a study carried out by the Novus polling agency on behalf of the language magazine Språktidningen. And there was one three-letter word that got people particularly riled up, and that was hen. What does the word hen mean, and why does it annoy a lot of people?
2: Hen is basically the the gender-neutral pronoun for Swedish. So instead of saying he or she, "han eller hon, you'd say uh, hen. For someone that's non-binary, or if you maybe. writing a text and you don't want to be writing he or she, he or she, he or she, if you don't know the gender of the person you're talking about, you could also write him. But um, the reason it annoys some people is because it kind of has this, partly a political aspect and partly an ideological aspect. So this poll said that, Amongst the political parties, so if the people who said that they sympathise with the Sweden Democrats, 50% of them said that hen was the most irritating aspect of the Swedish language. But there was a good quote um, from uh, the CEO of the Poland company Novus, Torbjorn Hrström, who was saying that he wasn't surprised by this because people join the Sweden Democrats because they want things to be like they were in the past. And the whole kind of rise of of accepting different gender identities and accepting that people can be gender neutral or kind of non-binary that symbolizes a lot of the developments that people who join the sweden democrats are against basically so that was one thing that was interesting is that like depending on what political party you sympathize with you would be more or less likely to find hen annoying those who prefer the left party, the Greens, the Liberals or the Centre Party, only 5 to 7% of them said that Hen was irritating. So I think it says a lot about how you view kind of LGBT issues, gender identity, that kind of thing, more, more than whether the word is annoying. It's like you make a bit of a statement like, oh, yeah, all these people that are bringing in this new pronoun. Oh, I don't believe that this should happen. People only have two genders, that kind of stuff. It's more about how you view gender issues than how you view the actual word, I'd say. But again, they're linked. But then uh, again, this this another aspect, which I didn't actually mention in the article. I think there was around 8% of people said the most irritating aspect of the Swedish language is when people use the incorrect terms for ethnic minorities, like calling someone an Indian. Not someone from India, obviously, but like... um like native Americans calling them Indians or saying Eskimos for for kind of native Arctic populations or saying lap, which is like an offensive term for the Sami population. So that was mainly younger people, mainly in the more left wing party said that was irritating. And I think not even one of the Swedish Democrat respondents said that that was an annoying aspect of the Swedish language. So again, all of this is linked back to politics and your views on race and your views on LGBT issues and your views on society, basically. Which is interesting. You wouldn't necessarily think that from a poll on what do you think is annoying about the Swedish language.
0: Really interesting. And another thing that got people really agitated was särskriveningar. What is a särskrivening when it's at home? And why does it bug so many Swedes?
2: So This is a little bit complicated to explain, especially in speech, because you can't really hear a särskrivening. So Sweden loves compound words. Like in Swedish, you can have rödhörig as one word, meaning a redhead again that's in English we have a redhead in English that's probably a bad example um, but the difference of saying en Hori kvinna is a red-haired woman but en röd, and then a space hårig kvinna is a red hairy woman so that just having that little space in the middle of the adjective hori goes from it being a woman with red hair to a red hairy woman which is obviously not exactly what you want to be here uh, talking about. This is something that really annoys people. It's like it's a typo. It's a it's a language mistake. And if you read it in, it can be quite annoying when you're reading written Swedish and you come across these sarskrivningar because it does change the meaning of the word and it, it also just looks bad. There was a lot of elderly people saying that people not knowing the difference between var and vart was annoying. So that's like two different yeah. versions of where basically. It's like Wither? where are we going? Vart, like if you've ever watched På he always says Vart vi på väg? Just like where are we going? Like what direction are we moving in? And then where, as in where is my car? Would be var armebile, because that's not like a direction.
0: Yeah, as Richard said, this is this is whither.
2: Yeah, whither. Whither 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 we are, are we going? <laughs> <laughs>
0: And finally, Becky, a lot of respondents said that the frequent use of English loan words made their blood boil. Why does this bother people so much?
2: So I think, again, this was also like all of the other respondents, this also had a clear split in terms of age and also education. So um, it was most annoying for those over 65, 29% of which said that English loan words were the number one source of irritation. And that was much lower in other age groups. And then if you looked at those aged over 65 who had left school at 16, this was even higher. Which, again, probably is due to the fact that they maybe don't speak as high a level as English as others. And it's just a simple, it's a simple fact that they don't understand what people are talking about when they start throwing English loan words in. Which... Is a fair point. I would also find it quite irritating if people started throwing, I don't know, Russian words into text. They're probably not going to be doing that in this kind of situation we're in at the moment. But if people start throwing in words into text that you don't understand what they mean, and then everyone just, no one says anything about it, you're you're going to find that irritating as well, because suddenly you don't understand your own language anymore. You're left behind. But then this is probably not going to be an issue in 20 years, because, because most Swedes under the age of 65 have a decent level of English and understand what people are going on about when they start throwing in English loan words.
0: We're going to move on now to our main story and talk about the global energy shortage and how it's affecting Sweden. Now, this is a problem that goes back to the start of the coronavirus pandemic when oil production slowed down due to a drop in demand. In Sweden, less wind power than normal combined with the rising gas and electricity costs across Europe led to record high energy costs for consumers this winter. And the issue has been further exacerbated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, most recently this week when Vladimir Putin followed through on a threat to cut off gas supplies to Poland and Bulgaria when they refused to pay for their supplies in rubles. Over the last few months, the Swedish government has reacted to the escalating situation by putting in place a raft of measures to ease the burden on consumers. In January, the government announced a compensation package for households affected by exorbitant electricity bills. And this was followed in March by a 14 billion kroner package of proposed subsidies, including a temporary reduction of petrol and diesel taxes. A 1,000 kroner payout to all car owners, an extension of the electricity subsidy, and a rise in housing subsidies for the poorest families. These new fossil fuel subsidies formed part of the focus when Richard met the co-leader of the Green Party, Marta Stenevy. And we're going to listen now to what she had to say when Richard asked what it said about how deeply rooted the environment really is in Swedish politics when the government was bringing back fossil fuel subsidies. Let's have a listen.
4: I think that what it really shows is how deeply depending uh, a developed country is on uh, the oil industry. One of the biggest, if not the biggest, delegations to Glasgow was actually the oil industry. So the the lobbying for keeping oil in our systems uh, is, is huge. And the past few months has really shown how toxic these dependencies are. When we look at how the possibilities to sanction Russia, for example, for invading Ukraine, where there is a hesitation to make the actual hardest blow that we could to the the Russian government. Because we are so depending on the fossil energy sources from from Russia. And this, of course, goes, goes back into when we look at the national politics and the, the suggestions now or the proposals that are coming from the other parties. It's absolutely ridiculous because they are trying to maintain this dependency, meaning that they will tie the people up into very, very expensive energy sources for years to come, rather than actually investing heavily now that we have an absolutely fantastic opportunity to invest heavily in renewable energy sources and in the green transition, making both energy prices, uh, fuel prices, and uh, everyday life a lot cheaper for people in the future. Uh, but instead, they are backing into a sort of a 50s dream of gasoline. Uh, it's It's been really, really sad to see because uh, increasing uh, the climate crisis and increasing emissions will definitely not be the path towards a secure Europe or to, uh, to an independency from, from these villain states that provide us with oil.
3: As you said at the beginning, there's a risk that the whole debate on, on the climate boils down to nuclear or no nuclear, and, and, and that the right-wing parties, particularly the moderates, have been pushing for several years now nuclear as a kind of magic bullet for the climate. How can you combat that argument? Because it does seem to cut through.
4: Yes, it does. But it's it's, basically, it's ridiculous. Uh, Because if we want energy for our companies and for our industry uh, in the near future, then it is the offshore wind-based power that we need to invest in. And if we were to to just wait with that and just put that on hold as as the moderate party wants and to wait for nuclear power, then it would be both way too expensive and way too slow. Not to go into the discussion on the risks uh, that actually exist in nuclear power and also in where we buy the uranium from and so on. But just looking at cost and time, then it's absolutely ridiculous for a party that is considering themselves to be very sort of company friendly. Uh, I just can't get my head around how they managed to end up in this position where they are actually slowing down energy production and slowing down the uh, the investments in, in energy production that we so badly need in Sweden and that Europe would need to actually be able to cut the dependency on, on Russia, for example.
0: We've just been listening to part of Richard's wide-ranging interview with Green Party co-leader Merta Stenevy. And if you're interested in finding out more of what she had to say on everything from income inequality to the Easter riots, you can find more of the interview on thelocal.se. Now, Richard, listening to the interview, the Greens clearly want much heavier investment in offshore wind power, whereas if you'd been speaking to the moderate party leader, Ulf Kristersson, you would have heard arguments in favour of nuclear energy. Which direction is Sweden most likely to take in the longer term? To, to see
3: it as a question as nuclear versus wind is, is quite misleading because wind power and nuclear power have sort of different functions in the power system because nuclear is this kind of inflexible base load, whereas wind is cheap but fluctuating. And the idea that there are alternatives, I think, is wrong because they, they do something very different. And, and also, the timelines are completely different. I mean, if you look at any nuclear power plant being built at the moment, they, they, they're all more than a decade overrun, they're four times over budget. If we we wanted new nuclear, it's not going to exist until 2040, late 2030s, even if we start now. So in the short term, I think we need to build out more wind and short and medium term but in the in the longer term then there's the question of whether we need to replace Sweden's existing fleet of nuclear power stations and they can be kept running till till well into the 2040s so it's it's not a decision we need to Sweden really needs to make for a decade or so and so I think that in in a way that, that the moderate party has been framing the argument is a bit misleading. And, and I kind of sympathise with, with, with the Greens a little bit on that. And, and I and, and I spoke to sort of independent energy experts about this and they agree with me. I mean, it's not it's not something that it's, it's not the Green Party just banging their own drum.
2: Yeah, I think they definitely don't cancel each other out. They're, they could be compliments to each other.
3: But we are going to need a lot more. I mean, Sweden is going to need... Uh, with especially with some of the green industry that's planned. I mean, I think the power requirements for, for Sweden are going to kind of more or less double by the 2040s, which is going to mean a lot more power is needed. So we probably need both. But I also think that the other thing that's kind of misleading about nuclear is, is people talk, people say, oh, well, wind is completely inter- intermittent. You know, when it's not windy, you don't, it doesn't generate. And when it is windy, so what do you do when there's no wind? But but actually, nuclear is not that great for that because you can't ramp up nuclear power and ramp it down. It's pretty much a constant load. And, and actually, Sweden's hydropower is excellent for that. So Sweden, of all countries, is actually quite well-positioned for intermittent power because you can shut off hydro and open it up instantly. Hydro is incredibly flexible as a as a generation source. So I don't think Sweden has the same problem with intermittency as countries like the UK or that, that don't have such a huge base in, in, in hydro.
2: With hydro, you just shut, you close a hole in a dam or you open a hole in a dam, which can take, yeah, seconds, minutes.
1: But I suppose that the, what the moderates would say in response to that is that, yeah, but what we have now is a position where the the Greens and the Social Democrats and the left party for a long time have, have had a view that in the long term, nuclear power has to go, that we'll will extend its life for the time being. But in the long term, nuclear power has to go. And their question would be, well, how are you going to replace that with with something that 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 at least you know well first of all that that covers the electricity needs that we have and that that doesn't have the intermittency of wind and solar and yeah I mean they would say well you can you can leave the question for the future fine but You've still really got to start thinking about it now. We talked about, you know, the long lead times for nuclear power. There are long lead times. Yes, it's not until the 2040s, but we're already in the 2020s. It takes a long time to build nuclear power stations. They get delayed as well, even when you've, we've set, you've, you've started to build them and you've set a deadline. Maybe it's, it's, it's not a bad idea to start thinking about it and planning it now.
2: But, I mean, wind's not without issues either. Like, I think Martha Stoner, also mentioned mm-hmm. this in her in her interview, and we mentioned this a few weeks ago there's with the wind power in wind power in northern sweden has a problem of impacting the sami communities because it impacts their reindeer herding it means the reindeer don't want to don't want to herd on the areas they've been herding on for centuries and then wind power if you say okay well then we'll have offshore wind power that impacts fishing so it's kind of swings and roundabouts like mm. what what do you prioritize more what like And then nuclear is obviously, there's an element of danger there as well. Everyone thinks about Chernobyl when they think of nuclear. So that's one of the reasons people don't want nuclear. So all of this is kind of risk assessment as well. But also
1: the waste issue as well.
2: Yeah, and nuclear waste, exactly. Like, how do you store nuclear wastes? What do you do about that? What's the half-life on that? Where do you put it? How do you make sure it's not going to have adverse effects in the future? That kind of stuff.
3: I mean, the the government did actually make a decision on that. The moment the Greens were out of the Mm -hmm. the government, they were like, bang, decision on nuclear waste disposal. You know, now the Greens aren't here to complain. Um, Mm. But on nuclear also, there's these new, um, which no one's built anywhere in the world yet. But it's quite an exciting development is these new small modular reactors, which you would overcome all the problem with cost overruns of permissions. and, 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 you know, they would just come off sort of factory somewhere and be sent all over the world and then you sort of stick them in the ground and fill them up and plug them in and i think that would be i mean if if those start developing then then maybe nuclear looks a lot more attractive
2: i think also there's an aspect of Mm -hmm. like sometimes you generate too much electricity on wind power or solar power as well for that matter and you can't store it at the moment there's no kind of battery system for you to store that electricity and use it at a time when you have less power less wind So another aspect is in the next 10 years, in the next 15 years, is someone going to figure out a way of storing this? Because then that could also be the answer to not needing nuclear anymore. If we can store extra energy that we've generated in times where we've got a lot of wind or a lot of solar. That's another aspect. Like that would also kind of solve that issue as well. So there's a lot of things that could affect this in the next ten years. That's one of
3: the things that's really appealing about the green steel and green iron ore projects that, you know, are massive that they're planning in the north of Sweden because the intermediary stage in that is hydrogen. So made by electricity. So whenever there's too much wind, you can you can make hydrogen store it in these massive great cave storage areas they're gonna build. And then you just produce the hydrogen reduced Sponge iron when when you you know <laughs> whenever you do it, but you you get that storage. It it builds storage into the whole system mm. in in massive quantities. So so in the moment there's too much wind, they can make hydrogen, and when there's not enough, they just stop making it. And yeah. and that that would
1: create that
2: flexibility. Yeah, and at least range. it's not going to waste as well. Yeah.
0: If you've been enjoying the show and are not yet a member, please consider supporting The Local's independent journalism by heading over to thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer where a subscription costs just 10 kroner for the first month. Now, ever since Russia launched its full scale invasion of Ukraine, a lot of the talk in Europe has been about how countries can reduce their reliance on Russian oil and gas with Germany coming under particular scrutiny. But if we look at Sweden, James, how reliant are we on energy from Russia? In, in direct terms, hardly at all. I mean, if you look at how much gas Sweden
1: uses, it is only 2% of the total Swedish Energy mix and only one percent of the total Swedish energy mix is Russian gas. So very, very, very low reliance on gas in general. I mean, the, the gas in terms of domestic supply, there are only a few, um, a few, a few regions of southern Sweden that, that have any sort of use of uh, gas for heating or electricity. When it comes to oil, I mean, it's a bit more difficult because we talked about oil is is a fungible commodity. That means that it distributes across the world, and the the, the price of oil in China is, is affects the price of oil in Sweden. It's it, there a world oil prices. So obviously, Sweden, while it only imports 8% of its oil from Russia, it's Still, is dependent on the world oil price, and if, if there are restrictions on oil from Russia, then it will it will affect the world oil price, and that will affect Sweden. The other factor that's important here is the fact that Sweden is part of the European Union energy market, and uh, so that means that electricity prices, particularly in southern Sweden, are affected by electricity prices on the continent, and therefore the prices in Denmark and Germany, which um, and, and we all know that you know Germany in particular is in, uh, is 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 dependent on Russian energy. They, Affect the price of, um, of electricity yeah. in Sweden. So, you know, Sweden is not as badly affected as, as other countries. I mean, if you look at where Sweden gets it, its electricity from, like we were talking about before, the el- electricity generated in Sweden mostly comes from nuclear and from um, hydroelectric power. Mm. And those are not directly affected by Russia. Heating comes um, mostly from burning um, rubbish um, for for, for district heating Um, and that of course is not affected by Russia. So in in relative terms, Sweden is in a very, very, very good position but there are particulars here that are going to affect Swedes and and, and are going to mean their electricity bills. Well, electricity bills are already going up and are going to go up further. The fossil fuel use in Sweden is almost all for transport and that's basically uh, the only element of Sweden's energy mix that is fossil fuel based. Apart from, of course, in certain periods where there is an energy shortage, when Sweden cranks up its ancient oil burning power station in Karlshamn in southern Sweden, it's its reserve power station. And that it has had to do in recent winters. And that was quite a big area of discussion in Sweden. It was, it was, a, it was a very controversial thing and um, of course that led the moderates particularly to criticise the government for not investing more in new nuclear power. The, the Green Party pointed out that this had a, a very small impact on Sweden's total carbon emissions for that year. So,
0: As we've heard, the um, Swedish government has been busy trying to ensure that people can afford to fuel their cars and pay their electricity bills but beyond all the subsidies, is there anything consumers can do to keep their bills down?
2: One of the best things that you can do is insulate your home. Like, think of your home as a box full of sand and all of the possible little holes where the sand could escape. So do you have a window which has a little bit... Like, if, if you have windows with rubber seals that are designed to keep cold air out, if you've got anywhere there's a draft, that's all energy that you've paid for that's escaping out of your home. So that's a very easy fix. It's relatively cheap and it's got a relatively quick payback time. And people always talk about, oh, we'll turn your lights off when you leave the room, that kind of stuff. But that doesn't make much of a difference anymore. Because if you've got LED lights, they use so little electricity that it's kind of not worth the effort. But then if if you haven't got LED lights, switch them to LEDs because that's going to save you a lot of money. Um, and a lot of energy. Also, one major thing in Sweden is that you've got these two different types of heating systems. You've got heating systems, which are basically an electric heater you plug in. So think of a toaster, the element in a toaster. That is just a bit of metal that gets heated up. And then you've got radiators that are filled with water, so either you, you are paying to heat up the element, which is just an, le- an electric element that's plugged into the wall, or you're paying to heat up the water, which runs through the radiator. There's a lot of people in the situation where they live in a house which has this system, which is just like an electric heater plugged into the wall, which is very expensive. They were designed in the 70s after the oil crisis, when electricity was cheap. So people just put them in. They're They're really expensive to run at the moment because they're not very efficient. But then... The best thing to do if you want to save money is to switch over to the water-based system. But that's also extremely expensive. So it's kind of the only, you're only really going to do it if you've, you're relatively young, you've just bought a house that you're looking to live in for basically the rest of your life. So it doesn't really apply to most people, especially if you live in an apartment. You can't really switch out your energy system yourself. So it's kind of difficult. If you want to make massive changes in your energy bill... That's the way to do it. But then again, that costs a lot of money. It's weighing up that kind of payback time. Is it something that you want to but invest presumably in? presumably if you
1: live in an apartment, in most Swedish apartments, you will be on the Fjärverme, the, the district heating, district 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 district. which is more efficient. Yeah.
2: And again, like, and exactly, that's more efficient. But if you're not on that, then the only thing you can really do is get in touch with your with your um, housing association and say, hey, what are you doing to make this building more energy efficient? Because there's there's not a lot that you can do on an individual level if you live in an apartment that's part of a housing association, apart from putting on a jumper and turning your thermostat down. Like there's not a huge amount that you can actually do to save money. <laughs> How do you know all this? Uh, I should probably. I don't know. I'm just I just know so much about energy. No, um, my my uh, my husband's an energy specialist. He works for a, a Danish company or a Danish startup that worked with. Um, they work with Danish municipalities and actually they're working a little bit with Swedish municipalities here as well um, with helping them to make their buildings more efficient so he knows a lot about this sort of stuff I've maybe uh, used him as a bit of a resource on that
0: note uh, that's all we've got time for on this week's episode thank you for listening to Sweden in Focus and please do give us a rating or a review if you can it helps a lot and thank you uh, as always to my guests James Savage, Becky Waterton and Richard Orange
1: Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S code SUPER24.
0: That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by the local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.